0: Okay, so... When Julia Stiles was eight years old, she decided she wanted to be an actress. So, she put a statue of Shakespeare in her bedroom and picked up a crayon, an actual crayon, and wrote a letter to an avant-garde theatre company that said, if they had any parts for kids, please give her a call. It worked. Julia became a young actress on her own terms. When she went into auditions, she refused to fake being bubbly, you know, the kind of kid who sells cereal. She still landed a cereal commercial, but described the part as, quote, the bitch who makes fun of somebody for eating apple jacks. Instead, Julia Stiles became the most specifically typecast actress of her generation. She was the Shakespeare starlet who did three high school Shakespeare adaptations in three years. Oh, based on Othello, 10 Things I Hate About You, based on the taming of the shrew, and Hamlet, based on Hamlet. Each film was young and modern, just like her. Her Ophelia drowned herself in red pleather and reaver pants. And during the filming of 10 Things I Hate About You, when Julia was 18 years old, she met her first boyfriend, a new kid in town called Heath Ledger. Only after her Shakespeare streak ended did Julia return to civilian life and enroll in Columbia University, where she studied, of course, English literature. How did she feel about her high school films when she graduated college? Julia groaned, ugh, I want a do-over on a lot of them. I want a do-over on Hamlet for sure. Hi! I'm Amy Nicholson, chief film critic for MTV News, and welcome to Skillset, the podcast where every guest is an expert and every week they teach you and me a new way to look at the movies. Today, Skillset is skipping across time from ye old England to modern-day stoners to ancient ancient beasts. First up, William Shakespeare's plays are over 4 centuries old. So why do they fit so well in modern high school movies, with or without Julia Stiles? Let's talk to Dr. Gitanjali Shahani, professor of English at San Francisco State University, about the lasting power of 400-year-old blockbusters. Then, get this. Last year, a research team found traces of weed and cocaine on Shakespeare's pipes. The bard was baked. Okay, that sounds like the plot of a teen movie, kind of like the stoner comedy high school where a kid feeds his entire class pop brownies. That sounds extreme, but according to Emily Feinstein of the National Center of Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia, 90% of teenagers say their classmates smoke, drink, or use drugs during the school day. That stat is staggering, so we called up Emily to learn more. And finally, if after all of that you think you are seeing things, you are not alone. Comedian Bobcat Goldthwaite, the star of one of my all time favorite teen movies, One Crazy Summer, has spent years on a mission to find Bigfoot. How close has he come? Let's ask on this week's episode of Skillset. Here's the thing about Shakespeare we think of him as highbrow, but in 1599, He was popular, more Michael Bay or Steven Spielberg than some fancy guy in tights. Shakespeare wrote plays for everyone, which is why, even today, everyone can see themselves in his plays, whether they're set in the past or the present, in castles or in high school classrooms. Dr. Gitanjali Shahani of San Francisco State University teaches Shakespeare, and she's the expert of all things Shakespeare and modern-day Shakespeare movies. So he called her up to talk about why his old hits are still hits and what classic play she wants to see get its Hollywood update. So, Gitanjali, we all know that Shakespeare wrote for the masses, but does that
1: include teenagers? It's possible that there were teenagers going to the theater then. Life expectancy in that time was 30 years. So there were more young people than there were old people. But I don't know if he envisioned that it would show up in high school Hollywood theater and high school Hollywood film Uh, but that is the thing about his plays they show up in all kinds of unlikely places we have films that are set in high school that was I think a big deal in the 90s we have films that have made their way into war-torn post-World War settings we have Shakespeare making his way into small-town India and Bollywood settings so it doesn't surprise me he shows up in all kinds of unlikely places so let's talk about 10 things I hate about
0: you It's based on The Taming of the Shrew, which is one of Shakespeare's most controversial plays. But Ten Things is is one of the most beloved teen movies from the 90s. How do you make sense of that reaction
1: gap? Yeah, I think it's also a time that it came out. Now, the thing about Taming of the Shrew is that it shows up in almost every era. Uh, There were many versions of it during the suffragist period. You can see why women in the home, women outside the home, women as showish was a big issue. Uh, It showed up in the phase of TV movies in the heyday of the feminist movement. And this is a particularly interesting show for the post-feminist audience. Uh, And it's targeted at a high school audience, uh, which, uh, and it it does this very cleverly because it mocks the high school conventions. Uh, It mocks all the stereotypes of the high school characters, you know, the AV nerd, the jock, the rebellious character, the calm, And it works those from a Shakespearean perspective. So I think that's where it was very clever in mixing those two genres.
0: When you teach the film to your students, is there a gap where they're reading the play and they hate Petruchio, but then they see the movie and they love Heath Ledger's Patrick so much that they like that character way better?
1: Always. And uh, we never just watch one version. I think that's a trick with teaching a Shakespearean film class is that if you do one, it fixes the play as being this, but when you do many, watch many different versions, it allows for fluidity on how Petruchio can come across. And I think that's, uh, uh, you know, very well calculated in the choice of Heat Ledger, because the play and many versions of it are conscious of the fact that he's a very dark character. And then, of course, there's Heat Ledger who has a certain darkness in the port- in his portrayal in this film. But he's also shown as he becomes gentler, he becomes more endearing. Uh, he's uh, at the party, he's caring for her when he's drunk. So they do see that side, and they see how the taming narrative can work within the conventions of high school and prom, and they do find him more appealing for all those reasons.
0: What about the idea of female independence? Because it feels like here in 10 Things I Hate About You, female independence gets partially equated just with teenage independence, with becoming your own person.
1: Right. And I think that uh, there the film has a lot to work with because in terms of teenage independence, what is she? What what makes her a shroom? Is it just the fact that she's an angry teenager? Is it just the fact that she's a misfit in the high school setting? How do they stick to the fact that she is a shoe and yet how do they work with that in a teenage situation? It makes her basically a rebellious teenager and a feminist one at that. The word bitch comes up several times, interestingly. We hear references to her PMS, we hear references to the fact that uh, has she come and taking her my doll. There's a way in which her Casting, all of these terms suggest that she is a feminist, but also a misguided feminist in many ways, and that's what makes her a shrew. Because, you know, who is she railing against? Who is the patriarchy and the patriarchal structures that she's supposed to be fighting against? Is it Mr. Morgan, that poor English teacher? Is it her father, who seems ineffectual in many ways? So it's, it suggests that she's almost misguided in her feminism, which is, I think, an interesting take on both the shrew narrative
0: and on feminism itself. It's striking to me that as a culture, we still haven't gotten over this lame joke about how dads never want to let their daughters date.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think Mr. Stratford is such an interesting character. Actually, all the male characters are interesting. All the grown-ups are interesting. Now, this is something, I don't know if this is answering your question, but I'll just talk a little about Shakespeare's romantic comedies anyway. A lot of his comedies, are like 12th Night, like Midsummer Night's Dream, even as you like it, they all take place in what one critic has called a green world. A green world is, well, literally green in that it's surrounded by nature. It's like the forest of Arden. It's like the forest in Midsummer Night's Dream with fairies and park and things like that. But really what it represents is a move away from the world of adults, a move away from law, order, authority, uh, where lovers have free reign, Uh, and then they eventually return back into that world. Taming of the Shoe in uh, Shakespeare's play does not have that kind of green world, but I think ten things. My school seems to serve as that green world because there are all these young lovers, there are all these possible romance plots, and then there are these adults on the fringes of it. And if you notice, not one of the adults seems in any way to have authority or to be a role model. So does Mr. Stratford himself, who seems to be this kind of... Billy overprotective dad whose wife has left him and who doesn't have much control over anything that's going on. And I think it's interesting that yes, he's obsessed with his daughter's chastity and seems to want to control it, much like maybe Shakespeare's father in Shakespeare's uh, plays would be. But he's also ineffectual. Sure. Kat tells him at one point, you don't have your own life under control, so how could you control mine? And when we get to the end of the film, we see... Everyone has grown up but Mr. Stratford has too right he's understood that she needs to go to Sarah Lawrence he understood that she needs to be different so we see him going through that narrative arc as well and in that sense I think he's an interesting character too what Shakespeare play do you want to see get
0: a high school remake?
1: Hmm, I think some some of the interesting ones have already been done uh she's the man uh with twelve nights or with Othello uh so. We've had a lot of settings, uh, Shakespeare settings, or rather high school settings for Shakespeare plays. Has there been a mix-up night stream? I'm not sure, but that would lend itself perfectly to that. And I can see a lot of, you know, mind-altering substances working their way into that with the love juice plot. So I I think that would certainly be interesting.
0: I've never thought about that. I think you are exactly right. Well, in Hollywood... There's a stereotype that if you want to make a movie that makes a lot of money, then you have to make a movie for the masses. But if you make a movie for the masses, it can't
1: be too smart. What would Shakespeare say to that? He would be on board completely. People tend to think of Shakespeare as high culture. People tend to think of Shakespeare as an author. But what they forget was, first and foremost, Shakespeare was, he was a playwright. He was not an author. His plays made a lot of money. He didn't make any effort to print his work. He didn't make his effort to curate his work in the first folio or in any kind of edition in those neat notions that you now see today. That's not how he wrote. He wrote for mass culture. He wrote to make money. And his plays made a lot of money. So he would understand Hollywood. And he would be really good in Hollywood, I think. Well, Dr. Gitanjali, you have just made
0: all of us a lot smarter. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today about 10 Things I Hate About You. My pleasure. That was Dr. Gitanjali Shahani, Associate Professor of English at San Francisco State University, bridging the gap between us and the Bard. So what's the point? When you want it so hard for it to be, it's just not to be.
2: There's nothing you can do about it. So, anyway, Hamlet's a punk ass bitch, and Shakespeare's massively overrated.
1: Oh, shit!
0: Okay, so to hate on Shakespeare, you have to be high. That clip was from the movie High School, and the reason the whole classroom claps is because our Hamlet-hating hero has dosed them all with pot brownies, so he can have an excuse for failing a drug test. The war on drugs is 30 years old, which means that generations of kids have been told that their brain looks like a fried egg. Yet, When Emily Feinstein of the National Center of Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia surveyed students, she learned that 9 out of 10 kids say their classmates smoke, drink, or use drugs at school. At school. Wait, what? Talk to us, Emily. So Emily, in your recent survey that you did on teens and drug and alcohol abuse in high schools, 90% of teens said that their classmates smoke, drink, or use drugs during the school day. So I can understand what this means. Are they talking about like the same kids, like 90% of the school
3: knows that this one guy at the school is a huge pothead? Or what exactly does this number mean? So when we surveyed kids, first we asked them, do you know of kids who are smoking, drinking, using at school? And then we asked them, what percentage of your classmates on average do you think are doing this? And the answers varied. You know, on average, the high school students estimate that about 17% of their classmates are using during the day at school. But there was a range. You know, about 50% of high school students said that it's really only a couple kids, 3% or less of their classmates. But among the others, there was a much higher percentage of estimates. So on average, it looks like about 17% of high school students.
0: You'll have to forgive me about this. Yeah, because I'm startled by that number, too. I was a giant nerd in high school. This is my disclosure, if we're doing our survey right now. I don't even know how kids get high in school. Like, What sort of stories did you hear when you were doing the interviews? How are they pulling this off?
3: Well, oftentimes, there's a place on school grounds or near school where the kids can go. So about 52% of high school students say that there's such a, a place where they know that they can go and get away with it. And 36% of high school students say that it's really easy for students to use during the day without getting caught. So some are being sneaky, you know, the old putting the vodka in the water bottle. But others, there's just outright a place where they go and they hang out and they get high.
0: Part of your research also looks into the effect that social media has in that kids looking at pictures of other kids having fun makes them think, oh, I should be having fun. I should be like drinking booze out of a red cup. Does that sort of visual influence also happen when kids see movies about other high school kids who are getting drunk and having a ton of fun at parties?
3: Absolutely. There's a lot of research on the impact of adolescents seeing images of substance use, whether it's other teens or adults. Adolescents are more impressionable than they want to believe. So, for example, research shows that if they see alcohol ads, they're more likely to drink and they're more likely to drink that exact brand of alcohol. The other issue is that when teens think that their peers are using, they're more likely to use themselves. So for example, if they have this idea that everyone is doing it, it erodes their resistance. And they think, well, I might as well do it too. And it's another form of peer pressure that's a little more subtle. And so we see that the more kids estimate their peers are using, the more likely they are to use. And then the kids that are using are more likely to say that their peers think substance use is really cool. So it's this reinforcing effect. Where are the teachers in all this? So. The teachers are in a little bit of a bind. You know, the teachers that I speak to in public school, they know this is going on, they know that the kids are using, but they really feel powerless to do much about it. Sometimes the parents themselves object when the teachers try to get involved because the parents don't want their kids getting in trouble. Other times the school culture is such that the teachers are really disincentivized to speak up. And sometimes they just simply don't know what to do. They don't know where to send a kid you know, there's there's a history of taking a, an overly punitive approach to teen substance use, which is definitely the wrong thing. This is a health issue. When kids have problems and they're using, the best thing to do is to get them a health intervention. And so I think there's sometimes um, a reticence about telling on kids and, and having them be suspended or get in trouble when that's really undermining their future more, and people just don't know what the alternative option is. Right, because like
0: what we see in the movie High School is you see the spelling bee champion get arrested for being high, and it ruins her whole life. And then you see the school's potential valedictorian being so worried he might test positive for drugs, it would ruin his entire life. He couldn't get into MIT. He'd be kicked out of school. And it's a moment in a person's life where you actually could change the entire direction of what happens to them next.
3: Yeah, I mean, the movie High School is a little bit of a spoof, right? That That is a spoof on the idea that smoking pot once can ruin your life. So it's sort of the inside joke where We know 70% of high school students think that smoking pot regularly actually doesn't have any bad consequences and isn't a big deal. So in a movie like that, it's making fun of the idea that smoking pot will ruin your life. But it's true that in the real world, way too many schools tell us that they do take a punitive approach. They're more likely to call the cops or suspend you than they are to call a doctor and get you a healthcare intervention which is really what you need. So these policies also, they have um, zero tolerance policies in high schools where you get kicked out. And then when kids know or students know that a friend of theirs is in trouble, they're not gonna tell anyone because they don't want their friend's life to be ruined. And so there's this culture of secrecy and people not getting the help that they need. You know, and and the girl who wins the spilling bay is a perfect example of, you know, she would have really benefited from a health intervention to help her stop smoking pot and she had a bright future, but instead she winds up, you know, the joke is what working in a delivery truck.
0: Yeah, so what happens? Because in high school, the principal institutes mandatory drug testing on the entire student body. Is that legal?
3: No. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that is definitely not accurate is that the, the principal could drug test the entire school. Uh, the Supreme Court has held that some limited drug testing of certain groups of students is legal in some circumstances, but you can't drug test the whole school.
0: So have you ever heard of a case where students did drug their classmates with pot brownies?
3: (laughs) No, uh, thankfully I have never heard of such an example. Although another thing about that that was really inaccurate, in that scene The whole school eats the marijuana brownies before first period, and then within half an hour, they are all high. Marijuana edibles are becoming much more popular, people putting this concentrated THC in edibles. The danger is it really takes an hour to two hours for your body to metabolize it. So it's not realistic that everyone got high during first period. What's more realistic is that it took them a while to get high. Uh, And the people who knew that they were eating marijuana brownies would have eaten another one because they thought they weren't feeling the effects. And then like that one kid who ate four brownies and was falling over and they had to take him to the hospital, that's more likely going to happen.
0: You know, Emily, I do have to say, High School, the movie that inspired this really fun conversation, is a terrible, terrible movie. You watched it and I watched it. And this movie is so bad, I'm going to ask a horrible question. Would this
3: movie be better if we had watched it high? (laughs) (laughs) I think it was betting on its audience being high. (laughs) I think you might be right. Well, Emily, thank you (laughs) so much. This has been a really informative conversation. My pleasure. It's been fun talking to you about it, Amy. Thank you so much. That was Emily Feinstein of the National Center on
0: Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia. Follow your own conscience, but whatever you do, do not hate on Shakespeare. One of my forgotten favorite high school classics is an 80s movie called One Crazy Summer. It co-stars Bobcat Goldthwait and John Cusack and is frankly insane. It is so insane you might even feel high watching it, even if you're stone cold sober. Bobcat Goldthwait plays this character named Egg Stork who puts on a Godzilla suit and he goes on a rampage. Bobcat continues to be a comedian I love and more recently he became a director too He's still into classic monsters, but now, instead of giant lizards, he's into Bigfoot. Like, no, really, he's gone on Sasquatch expeditions. Bobcat Goldthwaite is a Sasquatch expert. But is he serious? There's only one way to find out. Let's ask. So, Bobcat... You started to love uh, Bigfoot when you were a kid, when you were 10. You got really interested in it. Later on, you went and you made a found footage horror film called Willow Creek. Right. You have a Bigfoot <laughs> tattoo on your arm. Right. You. I
2: have a Bigfoot bumper sticker on my car. It says, I break for Bigfoot.
0: To a lot of people Bigfoot is a joke, but to you, <laughs> you're a true believer.
2: Yeah, and I I love going out in the woods, you know, the worst day of or night of trying to find Bigfoot. If you don't find Bigfoot, you just went camping. So it's <laughs> fine, you know. It's 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 kinda like ice fishing too, I've noticed. It's it's a male-dominated field. There are some female squatchers, but mostly it's a lot of men. And it's the same kind of dudes that, like, go, hey, my home life, I don't know. I think I'm going to go sit in a box out on the ice. It's the same kind of thing. I'm going to go sit out in the woods. <laughs> okay, wait. So you have actually gone into the woods... A number of times. What happens when you go out to the woods to look for Bigfoot? Uh. Well, sometimes we hear stuff, but uh, you know, it's... It, different folks have sightings and stuff, but... I've had a great time. I go out, and it's really in the middle of nowhere. And it's in it's it's the, you know your cell phone's not working. It's pitch black. There's no planes going over. Sitting around a campfire, Bigfoot likes bacon. You know the guys will put bacon on the fire, and I'm like, you know uh, what else Bigfoot likes? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's- I don't know. I don't know how they know Bigfoot likes bacon. He Bigfoot also supposed to like tobacco, the native people used to uh, offer Bigfoot or Sasquatch uh, tobacco.
0: Wait, but you're a vegan. So when everybody else is cooking bacon, is there yeah. part of you that wants to say like Bigfoot also likes veggie patties? Yeah, he
2: likes veggie patties. Let's give him some... <laughs> I am not endorsed or sponsored by Morningstar, but I'm sure Bigfoot would like that. I'm also like, hey, you know who else likes <laughs> bacon? Uh, every predator in the woods mountain lions and bears like bacon you know so uh
0: also uh, overlaps with the venn diagram of animals that like to eat human beings in the middle of the night
2: yeah i'm sure bacon and uh people are the same smell i mean because we're not you know we i'm sure we smell like pigs that's what they say cannibals (laughs) say when you eat a human they it tastes like pork
0: well, I saw a very scientific video of you in the woods, in mm-hmm. the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, shot on infrared footage. Sure. And what you're doing is you're taking a gigantic tree branch and yeah. you're hitting it against another tree. <laughs> yeah.
2: For knocking. Right. What is
0: knocking? How scientific is this knocking? This is something that summons That's a, what Bigfoot.
2: Bigfoot, there's a, the a Bigfoot. Bigfoot, the recording's of Bigfoot, there's knocking, and then there's like the, the, the whoops, you know, the whoop, 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 and then, or there's long ones, I'm not gonna I cracked a little there I'm a little pitchy Wait, so what and is then that- and then there's uh, uh, samurai speak which is a whole nother thing samurai speak yeah it sounds like uh, like 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 gibberish like like a samurai movie like yeah you hear that out in the woods
0: are they supposed to be things that Bigfoot sounds like himself or things that Bigfoot wants to investigate
2: I don't know these are different things like once uh, these are just different recordings and i'm not saying it's big but these are the recordings people do out in the woods or uh, or discover so yeah one time i we pulled up to the site and as soon as we get out we hear this we hear something howling and um and i go did you and everyone's scrambling for the recording devices and i go did you hear that and they, everyone's like, "Yeah, yeah." I go, "I go." It sounds like a coyote. And this one guy goes, "Yeah, well, juvie squatch sometime impersonate other animals." <laughs> so juvie squatch. Juvie squatch is my favorite term. So Bigfoot, it turns out, young Bigfoot, it turns out, teenage Bigfoot is the Frank Caliandro of uh, <laughs> of of. of, of of uh, bipeds.
0: I mean, I think there's something really beautiful and really philosophical about the idea that there are people on a quest to find Bigfoot. Sure. That they're going out, you know, week after week, year after yeah. year, without seeing things. I mean, Patterson, uh, Patterson, Patterson, Gimlin. They went that, for years before they but caught well, that.
2: well, that that footage is is disputed, and if you know the history of Roger Patterson, uh, there's a lot of arguments about about um, a. If you get really deep, you know Bob and and Roger worked on a movie where they were doing kind of a reenactment, and and you'll see uh, sometimes you'll see stills from that.
0: Yeah, when we say Patterson footage, by the way, what we're talking the about is that footage. famous footage where, if you picture it right now, you can imagine yeah. like the Bigfoot looking over his shoulder. That's yeah. the Patterson Gimlin footage her, from 16. her looking over his
2: shoulder. Oh, her looking it's over her shoulder. I'm sorry.
0: Patty. <laughs> it, 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 I was looking at the Wikipedia. So I to the site yeah. where that was filmed. Yeah, Willow Creek, the name of your film, is we, based on that yeah, neighborhood. And, and, where and
2: the, the hardcore Bigfoot folks get upset because Willow Creek is the town near where that was filmed, but it's actually filmed in Bluff Creek. And. Uh, when we were making Willow Creek, I got really hung up on trying to find th- this location and I couldn't understand why. And, and, uh, my friend Amy was producing, was getting nervous cause we hadn't filmed anything. And, and then it wasn't until after I saw the movie, it was like, oh, in my head, I was looking for the dry riverbed that's in that footage. And that's why it took us so long to find this location.
0: Okay. When you first started hanging out with the Bigfoot community, did they yeah. know who you were?
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think they were skeptical of, of my sincerity because Bob Saget had blown through Willow Creek like a year before and did some sort of snarky uh, video, you know, uh, for some television show. So they thought it was just another 80s comedian coming to uh, Buster Chops. But I eventually made friends, and they, they know that my, I'm sincere. And, and, you know, there's also a lot of folks that are fun. It's not like there's a good good portion of folks with a, a sense of humor about it you know that's why it's like faith you know you can have you know you can have people who believe in stuff and they have no sense of humor about it so I just thought it was a good and, and I may someday still go back and do that make a movie around it You know.
0: okay but this is what I want to know like when you're out in the middle of the woods looking for Bigfoot what would you do <laughs> if you found him
2: well, I think me finding Bigfoot would be not good for the Bigfoot community because, you know what I mean, because it's me. It's Bobcat Goldbein finds Bigfoot. You know, I think I almost taint it. I'm probably out there for my own personal. I don't really... I, you know, the same thing with the movies I make. I'm really not trying to prove anything to anyone else. I, I, I do everything for me first, which is very greedy and selfish, but it's really for my own interests. I don't really... I just think it would be awesome to be in the woods with Bigfoot. That would be the best.
0: You are in that famous footage where Bigfoot looks over his shoulder at us, yeah. what does it say about us that he just looks at us and keeps walking? <laughs> and we, meanwhile, we're uh, you obsessed may, with
2: him. You may have stumbled upon it. I um, uh, maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe maybe Bigfoot doesn't want to be seen and, and, and is above all of our, our our malarkey. I think you know. For me, what's interesting is. Is what is, if okay? So let's say there is no Bigfoot, but what what does this uh, this this archetypal character? Why does it exist for thousands of years? What does it represent? Is it simply parents not wanting their children to go in the woods, and they say don't go in the woods because there's a, a giant monster that'll get you, or is it, or is it just? subconsciously, some sort of fear we have of bears. I mean, why does it exist for 1000s of years? And why does it exist in so many cultures? That's fun and fascinating for me. And as a guy who tells stories, I'm I'm drawn to uh, characters and in, in that uh, that are subconsciously in all of us.
0: How do you convince people that your passion for Bigfoot isn't a joke?
2: Oh, I'm not too concerned. I mean, I wouldn't take it serious if I heard <laughs> that, that I wasn't a Bigfoot. I think it does also play into a little bit of we joke, bo- both joked about being misanthropes. But it does play into that because uh, it's so fun to go out in the woods with no phone and no one around. It's So I always thought I'd hate that. It turns out I love that. I really love that. I love the idea that you can't get in touch with me. I love the idea that, uh, the, you know, uh, I'm back to using my senses and not, and not being uh, on my iPhone. It's really fun.
0: What would you do if you really did see
2: him? Um, it's a good question. I would probably get sad because I process good news the way most people process bad news. <laughs> so I might get really bummed out. I don't know. I, it would be... Um, I would be... I don't even know if I'd tell somebody at the end of the day. Not out of how I would be judged. I just wouldn't want to ruin it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank
2: you. Thanks a lot.
0: That was Bobcat Goldthwait, star of One Crazy Summer and modern day Bigfoot expert. You can stream both One Crazy Summer and Bobcat's Bigfoot thriller, Willow Creek, online right now. I am so glad Bobcat could join us for this week's episode of Skillset. And I am so glad you could join us, too. I'm Amy Nicholson, and I'm accepting Evidence of Sasquatch on Twitter at Nicholson. Subscribe to Skillset on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. And if you liked Getting High with us today, give us a rating and tune in again next week for the final episode of our high school season. We'll be ranking the teaching styles of the professors at Hogwarts. So stay tuned for our last batch of high school experts and hopefully a new, new way to look at the movies.
1: This episode of Skillset was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, Kasia Mihailovich, and James T. Green for the MTV Podcast Network with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.